in the 16th century, Russia dramatically expanded its border. To a large extent, that was thanks to the aggressive military policy of the Tsar Ivan the Terrible. And here we have the portrait, so the dates of his reign, 1533 to 1584. Uh, Ivan conquered several very important territories, and here we have this map showing the growth of his realm. Uh, so the territory in gray is what he annexed and conquered, and among his annexations, we have the Tatar state of Kazan on the Volga River here, which was conquered in 1552. In 1556, he continued his advance down the Volga River and conquered another Tatar Khanate of Astrakhan. And as you can see with this conquest, practically the whole basin of the Volga River was now in the hands of Ivan the Terrible. In the early 1580s, in 1582, the colonization of Siberia started, so Russia started moving westward in this direction. Ivan also tried to engage with uh, his western neighbors, and in 15. 58, he started the Livonian War, which actually was one of the longest wars in Russian history. As you can see, it continued till 1583. Uh, and the war ended uh, with disaster for Ivan. Uh, huge human losses, economic losses, no gain uh, at all for Ivan uh, in this conflict. And finally, another interesting event in terms of uh, Russia's engagement with the outside world was so-called British discovery of Russia in 1553. Uh, what happened in that year, a group of London merchants sent three ships uh, to find uh, a northern sea route to China, which was probably a bit optimistic, but uh, so these ships were caught by a storm in the White Sea, and one of the ships, uh, under the command of Richard Chancellor, landed on the shore on the White Sea, here where the port Archange of Archangel would be established later. And this accidental discovery resulted in the British discovery of Russia, as it is known, Commercial relations between England and Muscovy were established. And also, we have numerous accounts of Muscovy written by Englishmen. In English works, Russia appears as far-lying, exotic country, largely isolated from the outside world. And uh, Richard Chancellor himself made important contribution to this image. If we co come to this quote from his account, we can see what he wrote. All studies and letters of humanity, they, Russians, utterly refuse concerning the Latin, Greek, and Hebrew tongues 
there are altogether ignorant in them. Well, one might ask how many English captains, including Chancellor himself, knew Latin, Greek, and Hebrew in the 16th century, but by the standards of educated 16th century English elite, uh, Russia indeed uh, almost lacked um, knowledge of the classic languages. Uh, Another Englishman, Giles Fletcher, who was ambassador to Russia in 1588-89, took the theme of uh, lack of knowledge further, and he connected this, linked this idea uh, with another assertion that the Tsars deliberately kept Muscovy locked away from the outside world. Let's take a look at his quote. This is what he tells us. Russians excel in no kind of common art, much less in any learning of literal kind of knowledge. Well, we already heard that from Chancellor. But then something new follows, which there are kept from on purpose, as there are also from all military practice, that they may be fitter for the servile conditions wherein now there are, and have neither reason nor valor to attempt innovation. For this purpose also they are kept from traveling, that they may learn nothing nor see the fashions of other countries. Neither do they suffer any stranger willingly to come into their realm out of any civil country, which means, of course, a Western country, uh, for the same cause. Well, again, Fletcher was correct that... Uh, Russia tried to keep its borders closed, largely due to this long, protracted Livonian War. It is also true that foreign diplomats in Muscovy were often uh, confined to their residences, so they couldn't move freely around the city or around the country. But Fletcher's account glosses over many other forms of economic and cultural interaction between Russia and the surrounding world. From the 13th to the 15th century, Russia, or Rus as it was known then, was part of the huge Mongol Empire. And this means that Russia was involved in intensive cultural and commercial exchange. From the 15th century on, Russia also established contacts with Western countries, first of all Italy, the Habsburg Empire, later England, and other countries. In the 16th century, Muscovy, in fact, was involved in global commercial network. And here you can see the map representing commercial connections in the 16th century. Well, in the East, the most important trading partners for Moscow would be Isfahan, the capital of Persia, then Istanbul, of course, the capital of the Ottoman Empire. We also have different routes from Moscow to Europe, so this would be the route of the English. Uh, and through these partners, Russia was also linked with huge network of commercial routes going all the way around Africa to India and so forth, as you can see. So from 
Turkey and Persia, uh, Russia would receive silk. There was no silk weaving industry in Russia then. Decorative fabrics, arms, armor, weapons, saddles, and other items of horse gear. From England, that would be, of course, clothes, first of all, tableware, silver, luxury items, sugar, paper, copper, powder, sulfur, probably weapon to limited amount. Uh, from Italy, for example, again, clothes was supplied, glassware, mirrors, lacquer, and beads. From Russia, in turn, uh, we have the export of wax, tallow, skins, flax, hemp, ropes, and ropes were actually manufactured locally by uh, English merchants who is, uh, set up production facilities there in the Russian north, and then they brought ready products um, to England. And, of course, probably the most famous item of Russian export, which would be fur, known as soft gold. The biggest consumers of imported goods in Russia were the court and the church. Thanks to the intensification of diplomatic and uh, commercial contacts with the outside world, the Tsar's court accumulated and consumed great quantities of luxury items, uh, prestigious armor, luxurious fabrics. Uh, for example, the collection of English silver in the Kremlin is one of the best in the world. Here you can see some examples of uh, English silver. Uh, Muscovite courtiers also demonstrated a keen interest in Eastern armor. Here we have uh, an example from the arsenal of Prince Fyodor Ivanovich Mstislavsky, who belonged to one of the most prominent families at Ivan's court. He was a descendant of Gedemin, who was the founder of the Lithuanian ruling dynasty. Uh, further became a boyar, which was the highest court rank in 1575. Uh, after the extinction of Ivan the Terrible's dynasty, Further was considered a candidate for the throne. Uh, he died in 1622. And here we have this superb shield from his armory, uh, which was actually produced by the Iranian maker, Mohammed Mumin. It's forged from one piece of Damascus steel and covered with fantastic images uh, based on fairy tales, Persian poems, and here you have some examples of this imagery. Uh, further also demonstrated Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah, it's back. Okay. Um, Turkish armor, so here we have this gorgeous helmet uh, manufactured in the Ottoman Empire in the 16th century. Uh, these pieces of armor belong to very traditional type of protective weapon. Critical Westerners would call this type of armor obsolete, 
probably even barbaric, because for them, firearms would be sort of the <coughs> typical example of technological progress, which was, of course, associated with Western Europe. Uh, however, the East was also a source of firearms for uh, the court of Ivan the Terrible. Here we have another example of the Turkish flintlock from the arsenal of the arms bearer Bogdan Belsky. This uh, courtier was a very interesting character. He was Ivan the Terrible's personal bodyguard. Uh, he was also a member of the Prishnina, uh, this special uh, group of servitors uh, chosen by Ivan to protect him from alleged threats. He was also head of the apothecary chancery, and uh, there were rumors that Bogdan even poisoned the Tsar. Well, apparently, totally groundless, but obviously in his capacity of the head of the chancery, uh, Bogdan uh, was involved in regular contents, uh, contacts with Western court physicians. Um, and was, to an extent, exposed to Western medical knowledge as well. And uh, according to one account, Ivan the Terrible died when he was playing chess with Bogdan. So very dramatic. Uh, Ivan actually was trying to put the king and then collapsed and didn't finish the game. Um, so uh, the court of Ivan the Terrible used imported silverware, expensive, prestigious armor, without changing it, without altering it. One may ask whether this can be actually classified as cultural exchange. Well, after all, every dictator wants to have a Rolls Royce, and some have dozens of them in their garage, but this doesn't sound to me as cultural exchange, probably more greedy, because in order to have proper exchange, we need engagement with these objects. We need their acculturation and domestication. And Muscovite court culture gives us very interesting examples of such acculturation. The rulers of Muscovy capitalized on the Mongol tradition of using parade helmets for ceremonial purposes. Uh, the Mongol rulers, Khans, uh, didn't use crowns of Western type. Instead, they would have gorgeous helmets, normally decorated with uh, precious stones, pearl, inscriptions glorifying Allah and uh, military victories, the ruler, his heir, and so on. So, Prince Vasily III, father of Ivan the Terrible, commissioned similar helmet for his son to to emphasize uh, the succession of power in his dynasty. Well, as you can see in this helmet, we have actually two types of inscriptions. So one inscription goes around the helmet. Well, this is a Kofeski uh, inscription, which actually reads, it's in Arabic, Muhammad is the messenger of God, very famous phrase. Okay, when the helmet was brought to Moscow, what Vasily's masters did, they added another Russian description. 
here you can see it, which actually identifies the commissioner, uh, tells us about the purpose of commissioning this helmet, uh, so it tells us that it was uh, intended for Ivan. Uh, another interesting and probably the most famous example of such cultural interaction is another piece of headgear, which is the cap of Monomach. According to the legend, this is a gift from the Byzantine emperor, Constantine Monomach, to a prince of Kiev, and then Muscovite rulers, including Ivan the Terrible, inherited it. Uh, well, the legend is too nice to be checked. Um, completely anachronistic. Uh, and in fact, this cap was made of parts of two similar helmets. Probably they were actually even more impressive than the helmet commissioned by Vasilis III because they were made of gold. As we can see, they were decorated profusely with all these stones and pearls. Um, so, uh, but as we can see from design of this cap, it was radically transformed to make it fit for the Orthodox Tsar. What they did, they put this cross on top of it and thereby turned it into the crown of an Orthodox Tsar. And Ivan the Terrible used this cap to, uh, during his coronation as Tsar in 1547. And later, Tsars also used this cap. Uh, female members of the dynasty were also exposed to external cultural influences. Here we have the cap, so-called Velasnik, of Tsarina Anastasia Romanovna, uh, first wife of Ivan IV and the ancestor of uh, the Romanov dynasty. Uh, this is typical Muscovite female headgear. Every married woman, including uh, the Tsarina, had to cover her hair. Uh, but this royal cap, of course, is made uh, to the highest possible standards. It's made of imported silk, which, of course, reflects the higher social status of its owner. But what is interesting that here, important material is domesticated. So it became part of local domestic culture and tradition. Cross-cultural influence was not limited to the court. And if you look at, oops, sorry. If you look at these examples, these are liturgical vestments made of Italian fabric. Uh, in this case, foreign fabric become, becomes involved in the orthodox religious ritual. So we can see that uh, here we have cultural exchange going beyond the barriers of uh, religious beliefs, which were, of course, absolutely crucial for 16th century people. Uh, also, imported material helped the Tsar to sustain close relations with the church. If you look at uh, the, this uh, vestment, it was donated by the Tsar to Metropolitan Makari, who was a very important figure in uh, the Orthodox Church and in Muscovite culture uh, in 1549. Let's take a look at book culture. 
uh, book culture was also very specific area which was heavily dominated by the Orthodox Church. Practically everything what was written in Moscow, all books uh, were in one way or another controlled by the church. So mostly of all Moscovite books from that period would be religious. Uh, nevertheless, if we look at the official chronicle of Ivan the Terrible, uh, this is a huge chronicle containing uh, 10 volumes and about 16,000 miniatures in it. Uh, Ivan commissioned this chronicle at the end of his reign. So here we can see Ivan sending merchants to England, uh, to Elizabeth I of England, okay? So this is highly conventional art. Uh, as you can see, all faces are similar, okay? So there is no individual features. All uh, gestures, uh, poses are strictly controlled. So here we have Moscow, and this is Ivan sending his merchants. Uh, the merchants go by ship across the waters, and this is London, would you be surprised, and Elizabeth herself. Uh, well, several interesting things about this image, and there are many similar images in the Chronicle. First, it demonstrates a very intensive interest in uh, contacts with Western Europe, in this particular case, England. Furthermore, if we look at the crowns of both monarchs, first they're identical, so here we have Ivan in this crown and Elizabeth. This is actually a Western crown. We have seen Ivan's real crown, which has nothing to do with what they, de uh, what they depicted there. So what they wanted to demonstrate was that the dynastic status of both rulers was similar. So they were uh, on the same level in terms of dynastic hierarchy. And uh, Moscow itself looks very interesting. So you have this nice Gothic spires. Uh, this higher roofs uh, in Moscow. Well, would you be surprised if I tell you there were not so many Gothic buildings in Moscow in the 16th century. Actually, the place was made of wood apart from the Kremlin. So the question is, where do all these particular images come from? They come from Western prints. Because we know that uh, Western, in particular German prints, circulated in Russia in the 16th century. And obviously you would have Gothic uh, towns and cities in those prints. So what the master of this miniature did, he used Western patterns, but again radically reworked them, because this is not a Western print, this is typical Muscovite miniature, but it does incorporate very interesting elements of Western dynastic culture, as we can see from the headgear, and also elements of Western architecture, which the master learned from the prince, uh, from German prince. Uh, 
This means that cultural exchange goes beyond the limits of material culture and reveals intensive interaction in visual imagery. Western patterns are appropriated and become integral part of Muscovite book culture. The last question we need to address is what did Russia contribute to the global network of exchange? I already mentioned some items of Russian expert. Here we have, uh, this is a Western uh, engraving. Uh, depicting Russian ambassadors at the Austrian court of Emperor Maximilian II in 1576. Well, the group is divided in two parts. This would be uh, the heads of the mission, and that would be their servitors. And as you can see, there are bringing these furs, and there are actually two different kinds of furs here and here. So obviously fur was very important item both in trade and in diplomatic relations as a diplomatic gift. Uh, the image also reflects very interesting cross-cultural interaction. If we look at these figures, these four figures, uh, their garments uh, would be made of Italian fabric because in Russia, they didn't know how to manufacture patent fabric in the 16th century. So this means that these people appear at the Western court in clothes made of Western fabric, but again, of course, the design of their clothes is purely Muscovite. So again, we have very interesting transformation and interaction of different material and different cultural traditions. So it's another type of acculturation. And finally, uh, let's come back to the original portrait I showed you at the beginning of this lecture. But now let's identify this portrait. This is a Western portrait, uh, a portrait of Ivan the Terrible, which was actually made by the gun maker uh, called Karsten Middeldorp of Lübeck in 1559. Uh, practically, this is the uh, end of a gun manufactured by um, uh, Middeldorp. Uh, so, this image is very interesting in several respects. Well, first, Middeldorp's Ivan has the cap of Monomach on his head here. He has very severe look, so he appears as a very strong uh, ruler. And if you look at the date, 1559, by that time, Ivan, as we remember, conquered Kazan, Astrakhan. He also won uh, several victories in Livonia, so he's successful conqueror here. And this is how Russians actually would like Westerners to see their czar. What is interesting that the gun was commissioned by the city of Reval, Tallinn, and Ivan besieged uh, Reval in 1559. So practically the gun is commissioned by Ivan's enemies. Nevertheless, they feature quite sort of um, impressive portrait of Ivan the Terrible on this gun. So we can say that Middeldorp, who probably didn't care much because he was in Lubick, so he was not 
involved. He was not in Revel, so we might assume that he would have produced another portrait if he was there. But uh, here Middeldorp capitalizes on the official Russian representation of Ivan the Terrible's power. To conclude, in the 16th century, Russia lacked many cultural features typical of Western Europe. There were no universities in Russia, no tradition of classical learning. Russia remained largely outside the influence of the Renaissance and humanism. However, this didn't preclude Russia from commercial and cultural interaction with the outside world, exchanging commodities, technology, and ideas was diverse, intensive, and global. Thank you very much. Excuse me, you veterans will know that uh, we've entered the question and answer phase. We have about 10 minutes for questions. Uh, but equally, uh, veterans know that uh, when you are called upon to ask a question, you have to wait until one of our uh, uh, microphone bearers makes their way to you so that uh, everyone on the internet can hear your question as well as everybody in this room. So who is up for some questions? One in the back corner, and you'll be here second. Thank you for that most interesting talk. Um, something I wonder if you could explain to me is the links with the Hanseatic League, because by that period, the League um, was very strong and presumably would have wanted the kind of relations that you were describing. Thank you. Thank you very much. So uh, the relationship with the Hanseatic League, uh, well, two things. First. It was a very important commercial partner. Uh, and uh, the Hanseatic League was involved in uh, trade with Muscovy. But there is one thing we need to remember. By the middle of the 16th century, the commercial importance of the League dramatically declined, largely thanks to the great geographical discoveries of the late 15th, early 16th century, also, the fact that the English uh, established uh, a route around, if we come back to uh, the map, so here, uh, so uh, the Hansa would of course operate in the Baltic Sea, but uh, the English offered an alternative route uh, across, the, uh, across Scandinavia. And Given the fact that starting from the middle of the 16th century, the Baltic region was involved in a series of very dramatic military conflicts, not only the Livonian War, but we also have other uh, conflicts between Sweden and Denmark and so on. This means that uh, in the second half of the 16th century, the Hanseatic League was not as important as it was before. Thank you. What was the rough population of Moscow at this time, and how did it compare with the cities it traded with in other parts of Europe? 
Right. Uh, the uh, population of Moscow and the size of Moscow, unfortunately, we have no statistics for Moscow for the middle of the 16th century. But the English who visited Moscow, they actually mentioned that in terms of space, Moscow was larger than London. That was mainly due to the fact that there were no stone uh, buildings in the city. So practically, you would have uh, each household would be combination of many structures. Plus, of course, you have gardens, you have kitchen gardens. So the area of the place was huge. And the Englishman mentioned that it was larger than London, actually. But they didn't, uh, of course, fail to notice then in terms of um, aesthetics. So architecture was inferior. Uh, can I ask you very briefly, <clears throat> you mentioned the uh, image of the Tsar. Um, what, was there any coinage? Was he, his, his image on the coinage? Mm -hmm. Was this a means by which mm -hmm. his image might have been spread? What, what was the position about yes, coinage? The, if uh, so the coinage, uh, Muscovite coinage, uh, that was very interesting because you do have very specific symbol. That would be horseman. Uh, with a spear in his hand, uh, sometimes beating the dragon, sometimes you don't have dragon. Uh, and uh, there is a, actually, there are many speculations about uh, who is depicted on Muscovite coins. Uh, and um, some chronicles tell us that it's actually the prince. So they did have uh, the image of prince on coins. But again, that would be very symbolic, conventional image with no any individual features. Uh, what is interesting is that some uh, foreign masters, like Italian masters, for example, they uh, produced coins. Uh, so those Italians who worked in Muscovy, like Aristotle Fioravanti, for example, very famous Italian architect who built the Kremlin, or many churches and cathedrals in the Kremlin, he was also involved in coinage. So we have actually uh, a number of coins, or types of coins, uh, manufactured by him. Um, I, I noticed on the list you didn't mention timber as an export from Muscovy, and also on the map there's no mention of China. Is there any reason for that? Uh, yes, well, you're absolutely correct about timber, which was a very important uh, item. Uh, and uh, the English, of course, brought what they call tall timber for ship masts. Uh, uh, so that, of course, uh, uh, that was very important commodity. And in terms of China, well, this map represents largely uh, sort of the probably the situation in the second half of the 16th century. Uh, when we speak about China, of course, that would be the Great Silk Road. And when I mentioned the Mongol Empire, uh, the Silk Road operated for such a long period precisely because the Mongols, in a way, guarded and provided security for merchants traveling uh, across the route. Uh, with the collapse of the Mongol Empire, of course, the Silk Road, and with all the geographical discoveries uh, I mentioned, um, so the Silk Road became not that important, unfortunately. But before, you're absolutely correct, it was absolutely vital for 
commercial networks. More questions? Oh, way up high there. Um, what, were, what was the domestic and political situation of women? Did they have much power or much influence professionally or job-wise, or were they consigned really to child-rearing and to the fields? What, what was their position? Mm -hmm. So the position of Moscowite women, uh, well, first thing we need to distinguish is uh, peasant women, which would probably count for the vast majority of the population and the elite women. Practically all our knowledge about Moscowite women uh, comes from the elite circles. For obvious reasons, because the elite uh, was involved in um, written culture, uh, was exposed to written culture. Uh, Traditionally, it is argued that Moscowite women indeed spent most of their time uh, isolated in the terium, which was a separate structure uh, in the Moscovite house, and played no role at all apart from childcare, as you mentioned. But recent studies tell us that the picture was much more complicated. They fulfill very important social roles because uh, Moscovite society, like actually many other pre-modern societies, operated through network of kinship and marriage. And this means that women, especially elite women, were absolutely crucial for members of the court, like Vstislavsky, Belsky, whom I mentioned, for keeping relations among themselves, for creating this network of patronage, clients, friends, and so on. Another very important function we need to mention was uh, the spiritual role of women. Uh, and if you look, for example, at what the Tsaritsa doing, what is Anastasia doing when Ivan goes on war against Kazan? She's praying. She's praying for the survival of her husband, for his victory. And, uh, that was very important cultural function, so they provided spiritual link between the ruler or another member of the elite and spiritual forces, which, of course, would be able to give him his support. So, and we know that uh, Moscovite women actively donated to the church, to the monasteries, so uh, they also performed this very important cultural task, which we shouldn't, of course, uh, forget about. Would, would rich women, um, as they did in, in, in before the poor laws in England, would they um, expand their patronage or their generosity to the poor in Russia? Or was there a, div a divisive division that um, didn't permit that? Oh, yes, they were exposed. Uh, well, we need to remember that many women became nuns. And as nuns, of course, they were involved in charity work as well. And uh, they created uh, 
networks of friends and clients. And we have very interesting rules, for example, for Muscovite elite women. And uh, this rules tells us that a good Muscovite woman was supposed to take care of her friends, of her servants, dependent people. So in this respect, yes, yes. So the poor were part of this uh, network of um, dependent people, yeah. Okay, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. If you could join me in another round of applause, that would be great. <laughs>